This podcast is distributed for informational purposes, and listeners should refer to important disclosures in the blog and the website for more information. Welcome to the Wealthcast, presented by Modera Wealth Management. Financial planning can be complex, and the stakes are high. Stay tuned to learn what you need to help you work toward the luxury of financial independence. And now, here's your host, Charles Bowinski. Hello, and welcome to the Wealthcast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. On this podcast, we bring you the information that you need to know in order to be a good steward of your wealth, reach your goals, and improve society. Today, I'm joined by Charles Scott. Charles is an executive mentor and has been for the last 10 or so years. But prior to that, he worked with Intel Capital as a director where he evaluated and created investment opportunities for Intel Corporation. Charles is gonna talk about two really important concepts, constructive conflict and informed risk-taking. He's gonna do it in the context of business, of course, but he's also gonna talk about some interesting personal experiences he's had with Team C and helping one of his blind friends bicycle across the U.S., run rim to rim to rim on the Grand Canyon, etc. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for joining us. Charles, welcome to the Wealthcast. I'm really pleased to have you here and, and continue our conversations that have started at, at various locations over time, and including your Vistage presentation recently and, and our conversation a week or so ago. Well, thank you, Charles. It's an honor to be here. Well, thanks. Um, we've got a lot to cover and talk about team building, et cetera, but I thought it would be really, really interesting for the listeners to hear about Team C. When I first heard about this, I was just amazed at what you had accomplished and just the experiences you had had with your friend. And and so why don't you share with the, the audience your sort of the genesis of Team C and, and how that came to be, and then we can talk about lessons learned, et cetera. Sure. Uh, no, thank you for that. And that's my favorite topic to talk about. So I'm very happy you're starting with it. Um, this is the story of my friend, Dan Berlin. And we met because his daughter and my son were best friends in nursery school. And as often happens when the little kids are friends, the parents become friends. So I got to be quite close with his family. When I first met him, he didn't seem to have a disease. He hid it from everyone. He has this disease called cone rod dystrophy. Uh, where his eyesight was failing uh, more rapidly than for um, most adults. So by his early 30s, he started to really lose his sight. By his mid-30s, he was blind. And so he went through a depression and kind of, you know, of course, just imagine how that must feel for a person to lose their eyesight and lose their independence. He was able to drive a car when I first met him. Uh, and then so after a couple of years of feeling down, he made an interesting decision. He decided to start running. And he asked me to guide him in the New York City Marathon. So this guy, he wasn't a marathoner before. So it was after he lost his eyesight that he's like, I want to run the New York City Marathon. And I've run lots of marathons, but I had never guided anybody. And I was worried I was going to mess it up. He's like, nah, it's easy. Just, to, you know, just keep talking the whole time. Just tell me everything you see. And so it was a really great experience. And so we did a couple of, of marathons together. We did a half Ironman together. And then we just got ambitious. And I said, you want to try something really crazy? And he said, what? I said, you want to just try to run across the Grand Canyon and back nonstop? It's called rim to rim to rim. You start at the south rim of the Grand Canyon where the tourists take the pictures. You run across the north rim. You come back. It's 46 miles, but it's not any 46 miles. It's a, it's a really hard route. Uh, I'd done it before a couple of times with some ultra runners. 
And um, we, we did it together. And it turns out he's the first documented blind person ever to have run rim to rim to rim. And so suddenly we were on, you know, CBS Evening News, on Fox News, Outside Magazine, and kind of it built from there. Um, so and what we decided to do was to create this nonprofit called Team C Possibilities. And we take on endurance challenges never before done by a person who's blind and raise money and give it away in scholarship form to college students with vision impairment. And Dan mentors them. He's a CEO of a company and challenges them to overcome the perceptions many in our culture have of people with disabilities, the low expectations. That's an incredible, an incredible story. And it just, it, it makes me wonder, you know, thinking about just personalities, et cetera, what kind of personality does it take? What kind of risk taker does it take to take on that kind of challenge? I mean, we talk about, sometimes we talk about being nervous, standing up in front of a group of people to speak, let alone running rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon when your eyesight is impaired. What do you think the personality characteristic is there that allows him to take that kind of risk? Yeah, I mean, the first word is trust. Um, people die in the Grand Canyon every year um, when you fall off the edge. It is quite dangerous. And there are sections where um, he could have died, of course. And, um, you know, so as his guide, that was something that was always top of mind, <laughs> of, of, no, of, of course. But to talk about his, his personality, this is one of the reasons I like talking about him and I love hanging out with him and doing adventures with him. Um, it's because he could have decided the narrative of his life is that life is cruel, bad things happen to good people, it's unfair, and just fall into despair. That was a legitimate option for him. Of course. And instead, he decided to focus on his ability rather than his disability. He just focuses on what he can do. And then he, not only that, he shares with me and others around him his own experience with the world. And it's different if, from someone who can see. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's enhanced in, in an interesting way. So he talks about like the sound that the leaves make in the trees when the wind blows. It's different in the spring than in the fall. I, of course, we can perceive that. I just never thought about that until he mentioned it to me. So he's just paying attention to other senses and he's decided uh, not to be a victim. And that, that is the move that any one of us can make. You can decide the story you want to tell with your life. You can decide that life is unfair and, and make it all negative, or you can just decide you got a, a gift of this life. Let's be grateful for it and do the best we can with it. Focus on your own agency, and then let's go do amazing things together. And that's, that's his personality type. I just, I'm fascinated by that, and I have so much respect for it. It leads me to... to team building and people in your group and risk taking and and anytime we build a team of people and in your experience uh, in the business world and then coaching folks and then helping Dan with his athletic endeavors, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on risk taking in terms of teams and individuals and how we harness that power and get people comfortable taking risks. Sure. You know, I worked for 14 years at Intel Corporation. It's a very successful Silicon Valley giant, and they have a powerful culture. And two particular aspects of Intel's culture came to mind as you were talking. So one of them is informed risk-taking. This is basically the mantra of Silicon Valley. And then the other was constructive confrontation, and they go together. So and what I've learned with Dan is uh, ways to utilize both of those. So Dan is not taking any random risk. Um, he really, he literally could die if we were not careful. So you want to turn the risk dial down. That's the informed part. But then the risk taking is the growth path 
uh, and maybe things turn out the way you expect, maybe they don't. So informed risk-taking would be the, the frame I would use for this. Um, so you do your research and then you take your risk and then you gather data and you learn from it and you continue again. And this is almost more art than science that you, know, you, can, you can get trapped in too much research and analysis paralysis, or you can move too quickly and take a risk that you weren't ready for. So there's this really, you know, this balance point that can be tough to find. That's informed risk-taking. I mentioned trust before. What Dan does is he does trust his guides. I put on a blindfold and asked some, another guide to, tr to try to guide me on a trail. I couldn't do it. I kept putting my hand out because I thought they were going to run my forehead into a tree branch. Right. So I, it's, it's really hard. You have to trust, right? So he's taking a risk in me that I won't run his forehead into a tree. And by the way, I did do that one time. I was getting tired. I'm like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. It's like, you know, you know, 101, guiding 101, don't run the guy's head into a tree. But it, whatever, it was like hour six up of Pikes Peak, you know, so we were getting a little, you know, oxygen deprived. But the point is um, the informed risk taking. The other aspect I mentioned is constructive confrontation. Um, we have had plenty of conflicts, Dan and I. I know exactly what he does when he's angry and he knows exactly what I do when I'm angry. I lecture in a condescending way. And when I get that way, he says, Charles, words need to stop coming out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, conflict is inevitable when you take risks. The key is the constructive part. And that was what I learned at Intel, constructive confrontation. Many management teams I work with try to avoid confrontation. They see it as dysfunctional. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. So the trick is to take informed risks and then expect conflict to occur. And when it does, treat it in a constructive way. Look at conflict as the opportunity to problem solve, to actually become closer to people, uh, and to realize that it's just a natural part of risk taking. And when you're not so bothered by conflict, then you can deal with it in a constructive way. I'd love to get your perspective on risk taking in terms of sort of probabilities. As you see people think about taking risk, I've seen you know, we talk about risk all the time in in investments, probabilities of of success, et cetera. There there are very very few certainties um, when it comes to managing wealth. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to decision making in general, what was your experience at Intel, and what did you learn about sort of the continuum of risk, and and when you should be satisfied that you've got enough information? Are there guidelines there when you're going through your decision making process? Sure. It's a really interesting question. Uh, and the truth is, it, as I said, this is kind of more art than science. Um, that's a real tough one. And the, I guess maybe the first point I would make is if you expect to be able to figure this out and have certainty, then you're going to be disappointed, right? So you said it before, just ex understand that there is risk inherent in certain activities like investing, like adventuring, like what we're doing with Dan. So the key is to understand what's the context you're operating in. And then within that context, you try to put in place processes and create expectations that allow you to manage that risk. For example, I mean, investing, you would, you would want to diversify. And I worked for six years in Intel Capital. And so you wouldn't invest in only one startup company, for example, and assume that's where you're going to make all your money. No way. You'd be, you know, out of 10, the 10 would be the greatest companies you found out of 1,000. And of those 10, one or two is really delivers the returns, right? Mm -hmm. So the percentages, you understand. So that's, you just need to understand what, what's the you know, field of operations that you're in. And then I said processes, it, it can be very helpful to be organized and disciplined. So at Intel, we had, for example, the product lifecycle process, and there were specific stages in the product lifecycle process 
that you would follow and would help you manage the risk. There was a data gathering stage where you're working with customers and poten potential customers and current customers, um, and also all the internal constituents. You get to a feature set lockdown after which you didn't change the product and then you market and sell it. So I think being disciplined about processes and structure and then understanding what is the risk you know, envelope that you're operating within is important. And then if you do that, then, then you, you can manage it. Um, and, and if things don't go your way, that's fine. An excellent book on this, by the way, is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. Mm -hmm. She's really interesting. She's a, she's a professional poker player, and she talks about how poker players operate. And then you translate that to the business world and to your own personal decisions. And what you realize is you, you it's very rare to have a 100% zero bet. Like you 100% you know this is the right thing. It's more like 70-30. So if you gather a lot of data, maybe you make the bet that's 70% likely to hit. But 30% hits 30% of the time by definition. So you need to anticipate that. And so thinking in bets, that book's a really great, you know, a deep dive into this particular topic I like. Yeah, that is an excellent book. I, I wondered in your experience if, you know, Intel is, you know, when I think of Intel, I think of really crisp execution and very thoughtful growth. But as you've coached other folks in other industries, have you noticed patterns among industries in terms of risk-taking or people, types of people? And, and what would those be? Sure. I, and I think this is, um, I, I'll start off by saying it's almost predictable that certain industries will produce particular patterns of behavior. In Intel's case, I, I said that informed risk-taking is the mantra of Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley, the business model is based on innovation. You stand on your own head. You cannibalize your own product line. And if you don't do it, your competitors will. So that's the business model. So Intel's culture is an outgrowth of that particular environment. And so you're constantly taking risks. You're constantly pushing the envelope. And that's just part of it. I remember when I was in Intel Capital, I was interested in investing in the publishing space. And this was before eBooks really took off, before Amazon you know, had the big impact in the market. And I went to some conferences uh, in the publishing industry, and there were people up on stage just saying, nothing will replace the paper book. They were, they were very anti-eBook. And I wonder, like, why are you guys fighting this so hard? It's obviously an emerging trend. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money to be made there if, you're, if you just think from an investment point of view. And they, what was going on is they had an old business model with artificial barriers to entry that protected their profits. And so innovation was a threat to that particular industry. So it's rational. Once you have a business model, you protect the business model. If your business model assumes disruption and innovation, then you're going to operate that way. If the business model assumes artificial controls, you're going to operate that way. So yes, the short answer is yes. You'll see a, a wide range of patterns of behavior depending on industry. Typically, you can back out from the business model that is dominant in that industry to understand why people are behaving this way. But it's probably safe to say that no matter the industry and no matter the company, there should be some element of exploration and risk-taking as part of your defensive strategy? No question. No question. Um, Clayton Christensen wrote very interestingly about this back in the 90s, the innovator's dilemma. And he was close with Andy Grove and had a big impact on Intel. Intel introduced the Celeron product line based on Christensen's analysis of the steel mill industry. What had happened was the incumbents had the majority of the market and these mini mills were producing really low quality, cheap steel. And there was an inflection point in the marketplace where the mini mills were able to produce just high enough quality steel 
at a really low price point, and suddenly they took 80% of the market. The incumbents were niched at the high end, and they had high entrenched costs and big fat margins, but they, they got niched. And Intel saw that possibility of that happening in the microprocessor space. Then the seller online was intended to be a bulwark but to pr protect the, the soft underbelly. And that was a low margin product line, but we would compare our competitors to Celeron <laughs> to force them into the low margin space and then make money in the Pentium or Xeon lines, titanium. So that, that strategy applies. But I, I think it's true across industry. Yes, innovation, it, it, you know, growth is the baseline of the market economy mm -hmm. and growth is gonna involve risk. So you do need to figure out some element of innovation and risk and some industries are gonna need to push faster than others. But I do agree fundamentally, if you're not taking risk, if you're not innovating, there will come a time where your business model will probably start to fail. Yeah, and that, that could be at the company level or at the individual level in, in your career, right? In fact, you know, that's what, what a lovely segue. So the, what I'm doing day in and day out, mentoring executives, is focused on vitality. That's probably the key word. And I'm working with individuals to figure out what are your particular sources of vitality and how do you bring them to life? The trap for people, particularly midlife and on, is stagnation. They get trapped in comfort, they get trapped in predictability, they get trapped in identity, in relationships, and we are creatures of growth and transformation. It is our job to constantly look for the opportunity to grow and to challenge ourselves. We need stability and comfort, of course, but that alone will lead us to stagnation. So there's this interesting balance between stability and comfort on one side and growth and pushing yourself on the other. And I work at that intersection with people. And it's, it can be really interesting when someone's really stagnating to kind of shake them loose a little bit, find their vitality path, and man, they come alive. Uh, and it, this doesn't require you to radically disrupt your life, although some people will do that. <laughs> Usually you can do this on the margins and just within the same identity, the same relationships, you just seek out how can you come alive. Businesses can do the same thing. Individuals can do the same thing. It just takes creativity. That's really interesting. Uh, I imagine that the skill of constructive conflict mm -hmm. or that the ability to have constructive conflict is equally applicable in a company like Intel, which is taking risk and, and there are really high stakes decisions going on. Not that slower growth companies don't have high stakes decisions, but, but it's more on the surface, right in your face, it would seem to me. Sure. And then the constructive conflict at a slower growing, more traditional company, I don't know what the best way to classify that type of company would be, mm -hmm. has to be there as well, right? You you need to, no matter, I guess my, my question is, have you seen a difference in the way conflict should be managed depending on the type of company in it, the industry, or is it universal? I, I think it's probably most useful to start at the universal level, and then you can see for your particular company or industry where you might start to tweak it. But uh, Bruce Tuckman has a great model here. Um, this is back from the 60s. Um, so it, it's Tuckman's stages of group development, where he identified a, a generic process that just always occurs when teams of people come together for some common purpose. And he identified four stages. There's the forming stage, the storming stage, the norming stage, and the performing stage. And your job is to be conscious of these stages and then to do particular tasks 
depending on what stage you're in. So in the forming stage, you identify the team members and the purpose. Like, what, you know, why are we gathering together? So in the case with Dan, you know, we did this crazy race across America where we gathered the first ever team of blind cyclists to attempt to do this 3,100 mile bike race. Starts in, in Oceanside, California, just north of San Diego, and ends in Annapolis, Maryland. It's a bike race that happens every year. Dan decided to put this team together. He called me up and said, um, you know, do you want to do this bike race? Will you be my guide on a tandem bike? And I said, yes, yeah, sure. I'm happy to do it. Uh, like, what is it again? And he explained it to me. And I said, 3,100 miles on a bicycle. What do we have, like three weeks to do it? And he said, no, you got to do it within nine days. It's a race. And I said, nine days? I was like, that's crazy. And he said, yeah, it's known as the world's toughest bike race. And I was like, yeah, that's a good name for it. So and, and what happened is in this race, so we had four blind cyclists with guides. So there were four tandem bikes and then 20 people supporting us, a whole support infrastructure. It took us a year to prepare the whole thing. Um, what happened in that race, it was the perfect example of Tuckman's model. So we formed the team, the cyclists, the support, you know, the, the navigators, the drivers, the people giving us food and the mechanics. And then we started the race. And so after the forming stage, once we started to begin, we immediately went into storming. There was conflict constantly. And sometimes it was personal conflict between people who get pissed at each other. And mainly it was just because they were underslept and underfed and exhausted, you know, but, but also it was just real. We had storms, you know, in Kansas, there was a hailstorm that blew us off the road, smashed one of our windows. There's just always something. So that race is kind of an interesting, you know, example of Tuckman's model where you go straight into storming. And in the case of storming, and this is where it's generally applied, I just like this story because it's such an interesting one. Um, in, if you find yourself in storming with a team, so there's conflict, first, don't freak out about it. I was mentioning before the mistake that management teams make is they think conflict is bad. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. In fact, it's the secret to innovation. So the first thing is don't freak out about it. Just say, oh, we're in Tuckman's second stage, the storming stage where there's conflict and tension. And then after you've relaxed about it, then you just focus on the problem statement. And notice I said focus on the problem statement, not the person. The problem with conflict is when people take it personally. Mm -hmm. So you want to depersonalize the conflict and say, what is it we're collectively here trying to do? Or what's our goal? We may disagree on how, uh, but how do we proceed? And by the way, we could digress if we wanted to into politics in our country right now, the degree to which we are uh, personalizing and um, stereotyping and um, looking at other people as the other is causing a great deal of conflict and making it very difficult to solve complex problems. So the key in storming is it's okay that you and I disagree. It's okay that we feel some tension between each other. The key is, can we respect that we're both trying to do this thing? We, we both have areas of commonality and there's a problem statement we're both working towards. In the case of politics, it's, it's how to have a, a country that's successful and, and that we're all happy and healthy in. In this case of the race, we needed to continue Continue the race. And in the end, if you can get out of storming or don't let storming destroy you, there were a couple times in the race where I thought it was over. We were, I thought the, team, we're, the team's going to fall apart because of the conflict. We resolved it. We got stronger. And in the end, we did not complete the race in nine days. We did it in seven and a half days. I never would have predicted that beforehand. I could not believe it. But every day we got faster and we got better and more efficient. And this is what teams can do. When you follow this model and you're, you have constructive confrontation in the storming phase, you can resolve it and get better. Oh, I want to dive into that a little bit, but just on a practical level, how many hours of sleep did you, did you get a night? I can't imagine. It was disrupted. The way we did it, there are different ways to do Race Across America. So we had four bicycles. Um, so any one of which was going at any given time. So we, we would, we would um, alternate. So it's relay style. Gotcha. 
one pair is cycling, the other pair isn't. And so we, I, I, if you want, I can explain it in detail. But basically, we figured out a structure that m was the most efficient way we could come up with. And we would basically do between four to six hour pulls and alternate between two bicycles. So in a six hour period, I, Dan and I would cycle three hours of that, 30 minutes at a time. And the other team we were paired up with would do the other 30 minutes. And so we, we'd have these little micro breaks as we went. So you could go pretty fast. The other pair, they were resting in those six hours. Mm, gotcha. Then we'd hand it off to them at a big transition point and then try to sleep in a moving van, zooming ahead to that next transition point. So it was disrupted is what it was. Um, and we cycled probably 100 plus miles a day individually, um, but with, with you know, movement all, all along. That's interesting. The, uh, I'm also curious about the competition between the pairs. <laughs> Was there competition in terms of, well, we did 20 miles or whatever in our segment, you did 10. What's going on? Was there any of that? Of or was it? There was. Yeah, of course. We're, we're athletes. So, no, and, and some, some took it better than others. Um, what Dan and I tried to do, we, he, he and I uh, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro a few years ago. And uh, one of the guides there um, said there's a Swahili term and it's um, pole pole. And pole pole means slowly, slowly. So if you want to climb to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, which is 21,000 feet high, so you're going to have to deal with altitude sickness, mm -hmm. pole pole, just take your time. The mistake people make is they, they early on, they're pushing way too hard. They go, they gain too much in elevation too quickly. They burn out their muscles and they start having real trouble. So what Dan and I kept trying to remind ourselves, even though we were competing with the other guys, was pole pole. Just we, This is a long race. This is nine days. So just like take it easy, take it easy. So, and sometimes we did that well. Other times you get all riled up and excited and, and uh, you know, whatever, you get caught in the moment. It's okay. That's um, just totally fascinating to me. I'm curious about going back to the model, going from forming, storming to norming and then performing. Yeah. Do you think it's unhealthy or you're, you may be leaving something on the table if you go straight from forming to norming? In other words, is it possible to do it? And is is that storming where the constructive conflict pays its biggest dividends? Right. So the first thing I would say is all of these models, there, there are many, many models out there that attempt to simplify uh, the complexity of hum individual humans and also group interaction. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first thing I'd say is, you know, don't let the tail wag the dog. These are yep. just, this, just this, these are structures that are generally useful to understand, oh, I see we're in storming. That's why confrontation is okay right now. If you start getting too nitty gritty with it, it'll start to break down. What Tuckman would say, in my opinion, from having studied it, is you, you can't get from forming to norming without the storming part. So it's just going to happen. You can repress it. Mm -hmm. You can pretend there's no conflict, right? That's more dysfunctional than the overt conflict, I think. And see, and this is the mistake people make. They think they can go from forming to norming and skip the storming part because, you know, we're civilized people here who don't yell at each other. And you do not have to yell at one another to have destructive confrontation. The passive aggressive behavior, the tension that's unresolved does real damage. So the key, and this is true in your personal life as well. If you repress something that's really bothering you, it will do greater damage to you. It's okay to be anxious. You don't have to always look on the bright side. I'm anxious right now. Just say it and then describe it and you go towards it. So the same thing with teams. You own the fact that there's going to be some conflict and tension. Some will be more dramatic than others maybe. But I, I think this model pretty much holds that early on in a relationship, if you're trying something difficult, if you're breaking new ground, if you're innovating, conflict, I think, is unavoidable. 
And it's because there's just going to be missteps. There's going to be miscommunications. You don't, you just haven't done it before. If you go into some system that's already in place, that's been refined and that's excellent and perfect, maybe it's, it'll feel really smooth. But what I'm talking about are risk takers, are innovators, are doing things you haven't done before. Teams that are really changing the marketplace, coming up with new ideas. That's where you, you just can expect storming to occur. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And I, and I uh, understand your point about oversimplifying the, the process. I was wondering in your comments or as you, as you spoke, is there a mechanism to use when there's a conflict that you found useful? In other words, I'm having a conflict with you. We're at loggerheads. Yeah. What, how do you resolve that? What's, what's best practices? Sure. So s- step one is to depersonalize. You and I are having conflict. I'm starting to get agitated. And rather than saying you're an idiot, I mentioned it before, you want to depersonalize. So see if you can remind yourself of our shared problem statement. If we're arguing, for example, where you want to you know, give a customer everything they're asking for, and I'm arguing that we shouldn't give them everything we're asking for because it'll make it impossible for us to run our business profitably. Both of us have good interests, right? We're, we want the company to be successful. You're, you're doing it by delighting the customer. I'm doing it by focusing on efficient processes. But we have a shared goal here. So our conflict is actually more about the approach to our shared goal. So step one, depersonalize. It's not that you're an idiot. It's that we have a difference of opinion. It's okay to have a difference of opinion. Step two is to recognize what is our common interest here. And that's what I was mentioning before. Politically, I think most people in this country love their children, want to be happy, want to be materially successful, and want the country to be successful. That's what most people want. So we've got this big space of commonality. We just are disagreeing on how to get there. And so the same thing in business. So depersonalize it, focus on the, the problem statement that we both share, and then you can do some tactical things. I like taking a walk with a person. If you're sitting across a table from someone, it feels adversarial, like the two opposing you know, legal teams. Take a walk with somebody, shoulder to shoulder. Often the pace will, will match. You'll start walking the same cadence. Um, if they almost bump into something, you're like, oh, here, come over here. You're, you're kind of, you're heading in the same way. So that the fact that you're walking together in the same direction is also a metaphor. Mm-hmm. It makes it easier to be a, a little more open to the two of us figuring out how we can resolve this conflict and work together. Um, and the last thing I'll say is think of yourself as the thermostat rather than the thermometer. This is the advice I give to parents who are dealing with a child who's throwing a temper tantrum or who's, you know, willful and, and doing things that are just designed to piss you off. If you are a thermometer, you will respond to the temperature in the room. So if you say to me, Charles, you're an idiot, I could respond with that same negative energy. I could reciprocate that. That's being a thermometer. Or I could be a thermostat and just keep the temperature at a cool 68 degrees Fahrenheit, no matter how much you turn up the temperature. You can keep calling me an idiot all you want, but I want to make sure that you and I both figure out how to delight our customers and run a business efficiently with profits at the same time. Can we agree that that's what we're trying to do? That would be my response to Charles, you're an idiot. Now I've just now you can reciprocate that energy. It makes it easier for the other people to, person to calm down. So pay attention to the energy that you put out because it's natural for humans to reciprocate it. If you're kind, people tend to be kind right back. If you're honest, people tend to be honest right back. If you're yelling at them, people tend to yell right back, right? So you can control a lot of this with your own behavior. That's, that's really great advice. As we wind up this podcast, and I hope we have the chance to have a, a, a next one, 
next conversation because this has been great. I wondered if if you could suggest any resources to folks. You you did mention a couple of books that you thought were helpful. Is there anything else that that you might that comes to mind that might be helpful? Maybe on that conflict subject. Yeah, and so the the book I mentioned before is Annie Duke uh, Thinking in Bats. I liked yeah. a lot. Christopher Voss's book Never Split the Difference. Um, has some brilliant techniques to use uh, in a conflict situation. You know, he's a former negotiator for the FBI with hostage takers. And he's got these tactics and techniques that are really amazing. And you can use them in business, not just with with hostage takers where someone's life is at stake. Um, So that'd be the book I would recommend. The other thing I'll say is if uh, there's a movie that's going to come out, I mentioned The Race Across America. So next year, this is, uh, there's a documentary that's uh, being made. I've seen the final version of it. It'll, It'll come out next year. Um, so this is about the first team of blind cyclists to do race across America. And that has some messages uh, in it as well around that, how we, you'll see that some of the conflicts <laughs> and then how we resolve them. And also the, the message around the perceptions that many of us have of people with disabilities. And what I'd leave you with is when, when you hear a story about a guy like Dan Berlin, who lost his eyesight in adulthood, went through depression and despair, and then came out of it to have a greater positive impact on this world than he ever would have had he not lost his eyesight. I hope you're thinking about yourself. What is the story you tell yourself? What self-limiting beliefs are in charge of your own growth path? In other words, we all disable ourselves with our self-limiting beliefs. And so maybe the, the last resource I'll offer is you and your brain and your agency and the stories you tell and to see if you can maybe write some of them down and recognize when you've trapped yourself with a narrative that is one of stagnation or victimhood and replace it with this one of vitality and agency. Oh, that's a fantastic message. Thank you so much. This has been it's a fantastic conversation from my perspective, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And I, like I said earlier, I hope we get a chance to continue the conversation uh, at some point in the future. I, I have tremendous respect for what you've accomplished, for what you've done with your friend. It's amazing. And I wish you the best of luck in the future in, in all of your endeavors. Thank you, Charles. And I, thank you for giving me this platform and the chance to share this message. I live it. I believe it. I love it. <laughs> and I, I really am grateful for the opportunity uh, to have this conversation with you as well. And I'd, I'd love to continue it in the future. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining Charles Scott and me on today's podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Charles is extremely authentic and a dynamic personality. Uh, When I first heard him speak uh, several months ago, I thought he would be a fantastic podcast guest and he did not disappoint. We've added some resources, some links to the books that Charles recommended or suggested you read in the show notes on this podcast. Please feel free to visit the podcast website and take advantage of those resources. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for tuning in to The Wealthcast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know by visiting us at moderawealth.com slash thewealthcast. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode. We'll see you next time on The Wealthcast. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.